Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Amy Muse. Amy is an assistant professor at York University in Toronto, Canada. She is also the York Research Chair in Relationships and Sexuality. Her research focuses on how couples can maintain sexual desire and satisfaction over time and more successfully navigate different sexual interests. She is a superstar in the field who has published more than 80 academic papers and received a ton of grants to support her research. But she's also a good friend and just a genuinely wonderful person who I know you're going to love hearing from. This episode is going to be all about the key things Amy has learned through her research. We're going to talk about how to keep passion alive in relationships, how to deal effectively with sexual disagreements, whether having more sex would make you happier, why cuddling after sex is good for your relationship, and so much more. This is going to be such a fun conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Amy, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Thanks for joining me. It's been quite a while since we've seen each other in person, but hopefully our sex research conferences will resume again soon and we'll be able to catch up in person. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that for sure. So to get started, can you please tell us the story behind how you became a sex and relationship researcher? What is it that got you into this field in the first place? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think, you know, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I was in psychology and I sort of always had this interest in relationships and understanding them. And I think part of it was just that they're so important in our lives. Like these are kind of the most important relationships that many people have, but that they also can bring like a lot of pain and they can be challenging to navigate and maintain. So I always sort of had an interest in kind of that paradox of like how we can sort of maintain these really important relationships, you know, but like overcome the challenges that are sort of inherent just in romantic relationships. And then I was particularly interested in sexuality because I think it kind of highlights that paradox. Like often we're drawn to a partner in the beginning, um, you know, because we're really attracted to them or sexual desires often a big part of that early stage of the relationship. But that's one of the things that we know tends to decline over time in relationships. But yet, people, you know, if they get into a longer term relationship, they often want to maintain that. So I think I was particularly interested in sexuality as just sort of an example of these paradoxes that we see in relationships. And I kind of took a long journey there. Like I started kind of researching relationships as an undergraduate student. I did a master's degree that was more focused on sexuality. And then kind of over my PhD and postdoc years, I sort of brought it all together to try to understand how couples can maintain this desire over time in their relationships. Yeah, I love all of that. And I love that you study these important issues in people's relationships. And speaking of that, you know, the way that you and I actually first met was through the Science of Relationships website. You and I were both blogging about the latest research on sex and relationships for that site around a decade or so ago when it existed. And that's how we first connected and got to know each other. And so I'm kind of curious as to whether that experience shaped the way that you approach your own research, because your work always seems to have a lot of like really important practical implications and takeaways for the average person. So for example, did seeing how much interest there was in science-backed sex ed, did that 
influence the topics that you chose to study or maybe make you make a greater effort in the work that you do to try to really focus on real world applications? Yeah, that is such a great question. I mean, the the truth of it is, is, you know, that experience of writing for a broader audience around sexuality was a really important experience for me because, you know, in psychology, sexuality, at least when I was sort of coming up doing my PhD, it was a bit of a fringe topic. Like I had to work pretty hard to kind of try to get like some of my work into like more mainstream outlets. It wasn't necessarily a very common topic that you might hear at like a more general social psychology or psychology conference. So I think being able to write in an academic way, but for a broader audience was really important because it helped sort of remind me of some of these broad applications of this work that we do. And then I would have the chance to like talk to people about it. And so I would learn more about, you know, how just people outside of academia were kind of receiving the work and then you know, what questions they had or what stories they had about their relationship. So I think, I think it was kind of an eye-opening experience. It just reminded me of some of these broader real-world applications that was sort of important to keep in mind when we're doing this academic work. Yeah, I know that it, it definitely influenced me in terms of how I approach my own research, where I do focus more on like, okay, so why is this important? But it also has made my writing in general for academic papers a little less formal because I make a much greater effort now to really try and make sure that anybody who's reading it can understand it and that you don't have to have a PhD in psychology to be able to understand what I'm writing. And I've actually received some negative feedback from reviewers and editors who are like, this paper is way too informal. And so in my response letter, I'm always like, well, sorry, but not sorry. (laughs) You know, that's just the way that I talk and communicate. And it doesn't detract from the messaging. Like, I don't think we need to write our papers in this really esoteric language where it's designed for our peers. Like anybody who wants to consult scientific research should be able to, and ideally, hopefully be able to understand what it's all about. Yeah, I totally agree. I actually, my students in my third year relationship class, one of the assignments now is to write like a blog style report about a research article or, you know, a set of articles in the area of relationships. And I do that because I think it's good to be able to learn to write like that because it makes you a better academic writer as well because you're going to be much more clear about what you mean by certain terms. And like you said, it'll be more accessible to a lay audience. Even in different areas of academia, people, you know, use different terms and have different ways of thinking about things. So I definitely think it's also helped with like grant writing because usually that's a broader panel of people reviewing it. So I think that that experience of writing for a lay audience is incredibly important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great assignment that you have for your students. So you've conducted a ton of different studies that are worth talking about. And I would love to just pick your brain for hours about them. So it was kind of hard for me to narrow down what we were going to discuss today. But as a starting point, I want to dive into a really common question that comes up around long-term relationships, which is, how do you keep passion alive? So one of your lines of research suggests that engaging in self-expanding activities together is one of the keys. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And also, what does it mean to do something that is self-expanding? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, this idea of what keeps the spark alive in relationships has kind of been what I've like spent my career and will continue to spend my career trying to understand because it, it is challenging, you know, as partners become more familiar it just tends to be more comfortable. It's less exciting. And so this idea of self-expansion 
is actually a broader theory in relationship science. And it's the idea that through our partners, we can gain growth, new experiences, like a new perspective on the world. And so when we're thinking about like self-expanding activities specifically, and the way that we've looked at them in most of the work is like a shared activity with the partner, but something that provides this kind of novelty or broadening. And so what we find is that on days when couples report higher levels of self-expansion in their relationships where they do something self-expanding together, they tend to report higher sexual desire for each other. And in turn, this actually resulted in them being more likely to engage in sex and enjoying the sexual experience more if it did happen. And we see these effects will accumulate over time. So people who do more self-expanding things more chronically, like over, you know, we usually study people for a few weeks or a few months over time, they'll actually report higher relationship satisfaction. So the interesting thing, though, about self-expansion is in my work, I've sort of been learning that it's pretty idiosyncratic for each person, right? What I might find really novel and exciting might not be the same thing that you would find really novel and exciting. So it seems to be important for partners to kind of work this out. And the other thing that I found really interesting is in one of the studies, we looked at this in daily life. So we asked people each day about their level of self-expansion. And if they reported like a, you know, moderate to higher level, we sort of asked them what they did that contributed to those feelings. And, you know, they, it wasn't that partners had to like go skydiving or like go on a major like European vacation, although those things could be very self-expanding. You know, people talked about like learning something new together. You know, I remember one couple talked about like playing beer pong together. You know, people like just went to a new part of their city. They maybe played a new game together. They talked about something new that they learned like through their job or through their hobby. So it didn't have to be this, you know, major event that you need to spend a lot of money on or, or put a lot of time into planning, but it could just be finding these ways to sort of capitalize on opportunities for novelty in the relationship. And I think part of the importance of that for desire is that we know that unlike other processes and relationships, desire can feed more off this sort of surprise, novelty, a little bit of unpredictability. That's not totally true for other things like commitment and relationship satisfaction. So within the context of a supportive, secure relationship, finding these ways to inject novelty, I think can be really important in particular for desire. And then this, of course, has like some downstream consequences for your overall feelings about the relationship. Yeah, what I heard from all of that is that beer pong can save your relationship. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my students okay. take away too when I present those examples in class. <laughs> I, I love everything that you said. And so the, the key point here is that you don't have to engage necessarily in new activities in the bedroom to get these benefits. And I know I've talked a lot on previous podcasts about the benefits of sexual novelty and mixing it up and trying new things. But what you're talking about is just going out in daily life and doing things with your partner that are new for the two of you, as opposed to specifically trying new things in the bedroom and that this kind of spills over and can have an effect on sparking passion and desire in the relationship. So I think the the takeaway is really going out and trying new and, and different things together. Yeah, you're exactly right. What we asked about was just self-expansion in the relationship. It didn't have to be something sexual, something in the bedroom. But actually, of course, some people did mention that the self-expanding activity they engaged in was sex-related. 
And actually in that paper, we sort of wanted to make sure that it wasn't just about it being a sexual new thing. Like we wanted to sort of show that it was just more general novel activities. And so when we removed those examples, we still saw all of our effects. So what it just suggests to me is that this really is about engaging in novel things in the relationship. And although sex can certainly be self-expanding, these self-expanding activities can be a number of different things and don't have to be specific to sex. So a different line of research you have suggests that another key to maintaining passion is being motivated to meet your partner's sexual needs, which is something you've termed sexual communal strength. And it's related to this concept that sex advice columnist Dan Savage has talked about for a long time, which he calls being good, giving, and game. So can you tell us a little bit more about this idea and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. You're right that sexual communal strength does have some overlap with uh, Dan Savage's ideas of being GGG. And actually, one of the highlights of my career is being mentioned or having this work mentioned in Dan Savage's book and being able to talk about it a bit on his podcast. So it paid off in that sense. When we think about sexual communal strength, we're sort of thinking mostly about that giving and, and to some extent game aspect of being GGG. So this is the idea that If you're high in sexual communal strength, you're motivated to understand and be responsive to a partner's sexual needs. So you want to understand what your partner's interested in and, you know, you're motivated to sort of meet their needs. Now, as Dan Savage would also say, there's limits to this, right? Being high in sexual communal strength doesn't mean that you're going to do anything and everything that your partner wants. You know, there's certainly, it's very reasonable to have boundaries. If there's things that make you uncomfortable or feel like you'd be neglecting your own needs in the process, that's not beneficial. But this idea that you're just sort of interested and motivated to seeing your partner's sexual needs fulfilled. And we find that not only does it have benefits to be with a partner who's high in sexual communal strength, right? They feel more satisfied, more committed to the relationship, but being a person who is high in sexual communal strength These are also the people that tend to maintain higher desire and even relationship satisfaction over time. So it can be good to be giving for the self as well. And then my caveat to this is the same caveat that I think Dan Savage would offer. Like, I think he specifically says, you know, game for anything within reason. And that's sort of what we find. So in this line of work on sexual communal strength, We also look at something that we call unmitigated sexual communion. And what that really means is when you're so giving or so motivated to meet your partner's needs that you sort of neglect yourself, you neglect your own needs in the process. And when people are like that, we don't see those same benefits that we see for being high in sexual communal strength. And actually, one of the interesting things about that is you would think maybe if a person's really sort of high in unmitigated sexual community, so they're like over-motivated to meet their partner's needs, maybe at least their partners would benefit, right? They might not, but their partners would. And we actually don't find that. In some situations, their partners actually end up feeling less satisfied. So it seems to be sort of best for both people when there's this high level of communal motivation and this motive to be responsive to each other's needs and interests. Yeah, and I give all of those same caveats whenever I talk about your work, right? Because we don't want to leave people with the impression that being motivated to meet your partner's needs means that you don't care about your own needs and you're always subverting them for your partner, right? This works when it's a two-way street and you're both taking turns prioritizing each other and also doing so within reason, right? You know, there are some limits that are placed on this and that's going to vary depending on 
the relationship itself and what your own personal rules and boundaries are. But as you were talking about this, you know, something that came to mind for me is, okay, so sexual communal strength sounds good, but is this just a trait that some people have? Like, is it part of their sexual personality or is this something that can be learned? So should I be going out and looking for a partner who's high in sexual communal strength or should I be thinking about this as like, okay, this is a skill that needs to be cultivated over time? Yeah, I get that question a lot. I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. So there's definitely a trait component to this, right? We see that there's associations with just a general communal motivation. People who are like that are also more likely to be sexually communal as well. So I do think that in any relationship, people are bringing in those those ideas. That's the way that they sort of see give and take in relationships. And you're kind of coming into the relationship with those ideas. But like a lot of other things, I do think that there's ways to learn. So I think that we're trying to understand this now by following new-ish couples like within the first year over time. And one of the things that we want to know about is how these kinds of things unfold. So if I'm highly communal and I start a relationship with someone who's less communal, what happens over time? Does that lower communal partner become more communal? Do I become less communal? Do I end the relationship because, you know, there's not a good sort of agreement on how you should engage in those things in your relationship? I don't have a perfect answer to that yet, but we have a little bit of evidence that these things can move around. So one example of that is we've also looked at this in day-to-day life. So we've measured people's sort of communal motivation during sex, you know, on multiple days over several weeks. And we do find some variability. So people, even if you're pretty highly communal to begin with, there's going to be days when you're sort of more communally motivated and days when you're a bit less. So we know that there's some fluctuation, which suggests to me that there's ways to move this around. And I think one key way in a relationship would be for partners to communicate about these things, right? Like one of the things that I always say is, it's really difficult for a partner to be motivated to meet your needs if they don't know what those needs are. So if you want your partner to sort of understand what you're interested in, you know, communicating that and the importance of that, it could be a way to foster like a more communal perspective in relationships. And I think one of the things that we find is these things are even true when a person is not interested in engaging in sex. So this isn't just like, tell me your fantasies, tell me all your likes, you know, this is also, I think sometimes we don't want to talk about certain sexual things and we might really be able to tell that our partner's like not in the mood for sex. Like maybe they're turned over, maybe they're they quickly put on the TV or they, you know, put on clothes that don't necessarily invite sexual advances, right? And we can sort of pick up on those things, but we may not always, if we're interested in sex, we may not always try to get their perspective. We might just go ahead and initiate sex and sort of see what happens instead of saying like, you know, I was sort of thinking about initiating something, but I'm getting the sense that you're not really in the mood. Is there anything that you would be in the mood for? Or, you know, are you more comfortable taking a rain check? Or is there anything you want to chat about? And so I think even when we're talking about things that you're not in the mood for, there's ways to be really responsive and communal in those situations. And we find that even in things like sexual rejection, if you're rejecting a partner's advances, doing so in a way that still acknowledges their needs is actually really important. It can help preserve relationship satisfaction, even in those situations that usually don't feel so great in relationships. 
Yeah, that rejection piece is actually something else I was going to ask you about because you have this paper you published on what you call positive rejection in a relationship, right? Where one partner wants to have sex, but the other doesn't. And you find that this positive rejection can actually be better for the relationship long term than having sex anyway, because you're trying to avoid a negative outcome, such as you don't want your partner to be upset or you don't want to fight to start or anything like that. So can you tell us, how do you positively reject a partner and how do you turn down sex in a positive way? Yeah, so it is about being responsive and the elements of this positive rejection that we're trying to understand are things like still acknowledging and affirming your feelings for that partner. So acknowledging that, you know, they might have desire in that moment and you don't and like, it's totally great that they have desire and it's not that you're you know, against them desiring you, but, you know, you're acknowledging their needs. You might reaffirm, like, I'm still really into you. I'm attracted to you. I love or care about you. You know, I've had a, I've had a long day or I'm just like not in the mood. And then also this idea of like kind of a rain check, right? Like I've had a busy day, like I'm not in the headspace, but like, let's make some time on the weekend or let's do something on this night. And then you know, we can sort of think about or plan to have sex after that. So I think it's just the the important elements are just that responsiveness piece, like acknowledging that their needs are valid too. And, you know, sort of signaling that you intend to meet them at some point. It's just not the time. So those are some of the elements. And that does seem to really preserve. And in some cases, you're right, was better than engaging in sex really reluctantly or like just to avoid a negative outcome, right? And I think part of that, I mean, there could be several reasons, but, you know, part of it could just be like being authentic, right? Partners can sometimes tell when you're doing things that you're not in the mood. That doesn't mean that we, you know, people never should never have sex when they're not like 100% in the mood. But this idea that if you're very reluctant, sometimes that can actually feel worse than if you just are honest and then you you rain check it for a time when, when you're sort of going to be able to get into it more. Yeah, with everything you're saying, I'm thinking about all of the ways that my work and your work intersect really beautifully. And, you know, this idea of positive rejection, I don't use that term, but it's something that very much applies in the case of when I talk about how to share fantasies with your partner and what to do if your partner shares a fantasy that you're not really into. And so maybe it's about, you know, validating them and saying, you know, maybe I'm not 100% on board with that, or maybe not yet. But here's this alternative thing that we could try or do instead, right? Where you're providing an alternative option for you to be together and express your sexuality together. And then also in terms of what you said with regard to you know, in order for you to be motivated to meet your partner's needs, you have to know what it is that they want, right? You have to tell each other what it is that you really want. So I just love all the ways that our work kind of comes together and really plays nicely together. So another thing I wanted to discuss was this idea of sexual desire discrepancies, which we've kind of been hinting at here for a little bit. You know, we're talking about cases where say one partner wants more sex or different type of sex than the other. So Let's say you're in a long-term relationship and you've got this chronic desire discrepancy where one partner just has more desire than the other partner. I know you've done some work on couples with desire discrepancies. So what can you tell us about, you know, what are some of the more versus less effective ways of dealing with a desire discrepancy when it becomes a long-term issue in a relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's it's tricky, right? Because Really, what we see is that a lot of the same things that we've been studying in these community samples, the things that we've already been talking about, 
actually do extend to these sort of clinical samples. And what we've studied so far, in terms of desire at least, is couples in which a woman in the relationship has clinically low levels of desire. So has actually been diagnosed with a clinical disorder. So this would be low sexual desire, like accompanied by some distress. And we've actually been able to look at things like self-expansion and things like sexual communal strength. And we do see very similar effects that being, you know, trying to find ways to kind of, you know, have novel experiences in the relationship, as well as this idea of being sort of responsive and motivated to understand the other person's needs is really important. And I think in these couples where there are these larger desire discrepancies, it's sort of important to keep in mind the things that we've just discussing, right? Like not just being motivated to meet a partner's needs when they have needs to engage in sex, but also being motivated to meet a partner's needs when their need is kind of to not engage in sex or to engage in sex maybe less frequently than you would like. So we often see that there's these partner effects, right? Where how how communal the partner is can kind of extend to how the other person feels. And we see this also in couples who are more likely to have desire discrepancies because they're transitioning to parenthood. So we know that at least in mixed-sex couples, women tend to report sort of lower desire after they give birth to a child than their partner does. And so this is another time where it's sort of important to be understanding about those needs that sex might not always be a top priority for that lower desire partner, and then trying to find ways to kind of navigate that. So you're both having your needs kind of acknowledged and met to some degree. Yeah, I love the way you put that, that it's about not just being motivated to meet your partner's needs when they want to have sex, but also being motivated to meet your partner's needs when they don't want to have sex, right? It's got to go both ways. So we have much more to discuss, including whether having more sex will make you happier and the benefits of cuddling after sex. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Promescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. And we're back. My guest today is social psychologist Dr. Amy Muse. Our next topic is sexual frequency. A lot of people seem to be under the impression that they'd be happier in their relationship if they were just having more sex. And in fact, there are some self-help books out there that actually advise people to go and have sex every day for a year with their partner in order to boost their relationship and get their intimate life back on track. And personally, that sounds kind of exhausting, but you know, maybe that's just me. But can you tell us your thoughts on this based on your own research? How much does sexual frequency matter when it comes to relationship happiness? Yeah, we had this exact same question in part because we were seeing this sort of advice in the popular media. And there were some stories about, there's one story about a woman who 
for his 40th birthday, gifted her husband like a year of sex every day. And so it does kind of beg this question of like, is that actually good overall for relationships? So we were able to get some nationally representative data from the United States. And so we could look at this in over a sample of over 30,000 people. And essentially what we find is that there is an association between having more sex and feeling happier, both in your relationship and sort of overall, so your overall well-being. But this leveled off at a frequency of about once a week. So it wasn't bad to have sex more frequently than once a week, but the people who were having sex more frequently than once a week had very similar levels of overall well-being and relationship satisfaction as the couples who were engaging in sex weekly. Now, people who engaged in sex less frequently than that, you did see that increase. So sort of up to that frequency of about once a week, engaging in more sex was associated with higher well-being. But then we sort of see that there's kind of diminishing returns. If you continue to have more sex, at least on average, we didn't see further increases in well-being. So what I always take away from that work is that it just really seems important to be able to like regularly connect with your partner. And this really doesn't have to be like intercourse or penetrative sex. I think a lot of it is just, you know, often in our studies, we kind of let people define what sex means to them. So I think it's much more about the connection with the partner. So just finding that time, you know, and and once a week seems like a reasonable amount of time to just make sure you're setting aside to have some sort of intimate time with the partner, but that you don't necessarily need to have this goal of engaging in sex every day. And I think a lot of people would share your sentiment that that actually sounds kind of exhausting. So when this work came out and there was some press around it, so I got a lot of people sort of giving me feedback and sharing their experiences, which was cool. But, you know, the responses really range. So when people would learn sort of about that once a week number, you know, to some people, that was not nearly enough. But other people, you know, they found it very reassuring that like, okay, once a week, it seemed like much more manageable because, you know, the idea of daily sex just seemed like impossible in some people, you know, with their busy lives and trying to navigate all these other domains in their relationship. Yeah. And there's a study that whenever I talk about your work on how happiness and sex are correlated, I like to bring up this study as well. I know you didn't conduct it, but I think it's fascinating where they took couples, I believe they were all heterosexual couples, and they randomly assigned half of them to double the amount of sex they were having or to keep the same sexual frequency. And I believe on average at the start of the study, participants were having sex about four to five times per month. So about once a week. So for the doublers, they were really just going to to twice a week, or about 10 times a month. And what they found over the course of this study, which played out over a few months, is that the people who tried to double the amount of sex they were having actually found it very difficult to do. Most of them weren't actually able to achieve doubling. And the people who tried to double were actually less happy in the end and reported less desire for sex with their partner. And the way the authors interpreted that was that sex had sort of become a chore for them, you know, something that they had to do instead of something that they really wanted to do. So it reduced their, what we call intrinsic motivation to want to have sex. Any other thoughts that you would add from from that study or any of the other research in this area? Yeah, those are my exact thoughts as well. That paper came out right around the same time as our paper came out. And so we had to think a lot about how our findings kind of gelled together And that was the key thing that I picked up on as well, that on average, the couples in the study were already having sex about once a week. So 
it would be really interesting to have a broader range of couples, have people that were having sex less frequently and more frequently, and just to see if those instructions would be different if you were having sex less frequently and kind of bringing your frequency up to once a week. I have not seen those data, but I sort of had the same question about this idea of couples are already connecting weekly. And these were fairly satisfied couples. This idea of doubling did did seem sort of a bit overwhelming and difficult for a lot of them to do. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I I love that every time we talk about this stuff and you don't have a specific data-based answer for it, you're like, here's the study that we need to do to answer that. Like, (laughs) I just, I love the way that you think and that you're, you stick very closely to what we do know and what we need to do to really be able to answer these questions. So another study of yours that I absolutely love looked at this idea of post-sex affection. That is, what is it that people do after sex? Some people fall asleep. Some people like to take a shower or bath. Some people like to eat a sandwich. But other people cuddle, spoon, talk, or otherwise engage in after-sex affection. So what has your research found when it comes to the benefits of being affectionate after sex? Yeah, we actually found that it might, we have some evidence that it might be like this, one of the key ways that sex might have these broader relationship benefits. So what we found was that couples would report, we had a few samples, but in one couples would report on how long they spent engaging in affection after sex, and then the quality of it. So how happy they were with that affection. And both of those things predicted being more satisfied. So if you spent a longer duration, you thought it was better quality, you were more satisfied with the sexual experience and with your relationship overall. And one of the key pieces of this that I found most interesting is we also looked at the duration of foreplay and the duration of sex itself. And so when we entered all those things in to see what would be the strongest predictor, actually duration of foreplay and duration of sex didn't predict sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction overall. It was only this post-sex affection that predicted these outcomes. So I think we hear a lot out there about like, and I'm not suggesting that foreplay or sex, those things aren't important, but this idea that like focusing really on the behaviors and how long they're lasting, whereas this aspect that is really more about the intimacy that partners are sharing and their affectionate behaviors, their intimate talk, their cuddling, those kinds of things were actually quite important for how they felt about the experience they just had and then their their relationship overall. Yeah, I think that's such an important point and it makes so much sense because as I've mentioned many times before, sex isn't just about a physical act, right? It's often about meeting some deeper emotional need that you have. And so by incorporating some intimate element into your sexual activity, it's better able to to meet the entirety of the needs that you have when it comes to having sex. And, you know, this also ties in with the research on casual sex that finds that a lot of people are looking for things that aren't casual (laughs) out of casual sex. You know, they want some emotionality, some cuddling afterwards or spend the night or gaze into each other's eyes or something. And so, you know, don't be afraid to have that intimacy, whether it's in a casual or committed sexual context, because, you know, as you said, that does seem to have a lot of really unique benefits for the people involved. Yeah, it's true. And it's interesting that even linking this with some of the other work that we've been talking about, we see, I should have mentioned this, but in terms of the sexual frequency and well-being associations, that was only found among people in romantic relationships. When we look at the association between sexual frequency and well-being for people who are single, 
we don't see those same effects. It's pretty much just like no relationship there. And I think there are times where having more sex when you're single are probably good and maybe times when they're bad. And so it might be sort of washing the effects out. But we also don't see the same effects of like more frequent masturbation, for example, as we do for more frequent partnered sex. So I think one thing that I'm always very aware of in a lot of this work is how important these, even when the relationship itself might not be a long-term committed relationship, that there is such an importance to these aspects of like intimacy and connection with another person, right? Yeah. And as, as you're saying this, when we're talking about studying sexuality among singles, I'm thinking that it's probably really important to understand whether somebody is willingly single or reluctantly single, right? right? And I haven't really seen that addressed in research before, but there are very different ways to be single. And so the experience of sex is probably going to be a very different thing depending upon whether you're content with being single right now at this point in your life or whether you'd really rather be in a relationship instead. So it's just, it points to the fact that studying sex and relationships is just it's always complicated. Yeah, it definitely is. I have some colleagues at the University of Toronto, Eubin Park and Jeff McDonald, who've started studying sexuality among single people, which I think is, we definitely need more work on this. And one of the interesting things that came out of their new findings is that sexual satisfaction was a stronger predictor of like, overall well-being and satisfaction with being single than other things like, you know, support or things that we might think about is really important for well-being. So I think that it's not that sexual satisfaction isn't important for people who are single. I think it's like you said, right, understanding what these motivations are or, you know, whether you desire a partner or not or sort of what you're looking for in your sexual experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So another topic you've studied extensively, and I know we're like, we're all over the place here because you've done so many studies on so many different topics, but I love it because I get to pick your brain about a lot of different things. But something you've looked at is how people navigate their relationships on social media. And I have thoughts on this, but one of the things you looked at is how willing people are to sort of publicly announce their relationship status. And your research finds that the extent to which people want to make their relationship status visible on a social media platform like Facebook might say something about them, in particular in terms of their attachment style. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found there? Yeah, that's right. This research is a little bit older. And I think Facebook has changed quite a bit in ways that I didn't necessarily expect, or probably that a lot of us didn't expect. In ways that I'm not yet sure are good or not. You know, I, I've got thoughts on that too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, when we studied Facebook, it really wasn't the way that it is now with kind of a lot of the news and, you know, arguably misinformation and things like that. It was more of a social site, I think, that people use mostly to connect with friends and other people. So it was a bit of a different context. But yeah, we did look at the extent to which people wanted to make their relationships visible. And we found that people who were more anxious, so anxiously attached, they tend to be more needy in relationships and really desire that reassurance and validation from a partner. They wanted to make their relationship more visible, whereas people who were avoidant, so they really value independence, um, they're not as comfortable with closeness, they did not want this kind of relationship visibility. So there were these individual differences that predicted how visible the relationship should be. And then we also looked at how other people perceive relationship visibility. So if I'm looking on Facebook and I see, you know, you have posts about your relationship, how am I 
thinking about that? How am I perceiving that? And so in general, when people share things about their relationships, so they had a relationship status that included their partner, or they had a profile picture that included their partner, generally people thought that that person was pretty satisfied in their relationship. And they often had a positive impression of that. So, and we know that people who make their relationship somewhat more visible, there is a a correlation with how satisfied they are. So people seem to be picking up on this. But what was interesting was that when people kind of did the overshare, like an example would be, you know, they posted something on their partner's page that really felt more like a private message or a private thing that you would say to your partner, not something that you would share publicly. Then people, they still thought the person was really happy in their relationship, but then they kind of liked the person less. So I think they were just sort of seeing those things as, you know, it's a site for sharing, but there are some limits to what you need to post publicly. Some stuff in relationships is is best kept private. So we definitely saw that bit of that bit of nuance in in how relationship visibility is perceived. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of my pet peeves is when somebody I don't know sends me a friend request and their profile picture is a couple's photo. And I'm like, I don't know which one you are, right? And then like I go out and I might meet them in person. And, you know, I don't know like if that's their name or their partner's name. It's it's it gets very confusing. So, you know, for me, that's the downside of having the couple's pictures is that like I can't figure out who's who. But, you know, that's just my own personal pet peeve. (laughs) So something else that you've studied that I want to get into is sexual fantasies, which is a topic that's near and dear to me. And I know you've done some work on it. And you published a paper recently on what you called sexual nostalgia or fantasies about past sexual partners. And in my own research on sexual fantasies, I find that exes and previous partners are amongst the most common people who appear in our fantasies. But you were looking specifically at people who were currently in relationships, right? Who were fantasizing about past partners. So what did you find there in terms of, you know, what's the link between fantasizing about past partners and how happy people are in their current relationship? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we were interested in this idea of, you know, what does it mean to have a fantasy about an ex-partner? Like it's somebody that you're no longer with, but you also have real experiences with them to draw on. And, you know, we wondered if they could possibly provide some kind of validation in a way that other types of fantasies might not, right? Like if you fantasize about like being with Brad Pitt, you know, you haven't actually been with Brad Pitt or, you know, most of us haven't. And, (laughs) you know, you're not basing that on reality, right? Whereas if you're thinking about an ex-partner, then you've actually been with them, right? And they could provide some validity to your, you know, sexual skill or attractiveness or something like that. And we actually found in our research that fantasizing about an ex-partner seemed to be this unique type of fantasy. So we started to wonder if it was actually providing people with something. So the way that we looked at this was we had people in relationships as well as single people. But for the people in relationships, what we were looking at was are you particularly likely to draw on these past partner fantasies or particularly likely to use this sexual nostalgia, as we called it, when you're feeling kind of unfulfilled in your current relationship? So maybe you're kind of going through a dry spell, you're a little bit less sexually satisfied or satisfied with the relationship. Are you going to sort of reach back in the memory and use those kinds of experiences to kind of maybe, you know, keep yourself sort of satisfied or feeling good about yourself during that dry spell? And we found that, yes, that was the case, but it was people who were securely attached in their relationship. So 
people who are low in attachment avoidance. So we just talked about that attachment avoidance is people who are like not that comfortable with closeness. They tend to value independence. So when you're low in that, you are comfortable with closeness in relationships. And so you do value that. And so it was only for those people, the highly avoidant people, they didn't calibrate their sexual nostalgia based on how they felt in their current relationship. But those securely attached folks, when they felt sort of less fulfilled, they were more likely to engage in sexual nostalgia. And we know from work on general nostalgia that people do use nostalgic memories to quell like current social deficits. So when we feel lonely or socially isolated, we might draw on those nostalgic memories of social connection more to kind of get us through those feelings. And we're seeing that people seem to be doing something similar related to sexual fantasies. And then we also found that this was true when we compared single people to those in relationships. So when people were single, if you were securely attached, low in avoidance, you were sort of more likely to draw on that sexual nostalgia. And then in a study where we could manipulate these feelings of sexual nostalgia, and this was only among single people, we found that thinking about a nostalgic sexual experience compared to just an ordinary kind of mundane experience, people felt higher sexual self-esteem. They perceived themselves as having more sexual skill, things like that. So it seems like it's possible that that's what those kinds of sexual fantasies might be providing in certain circumstances. Yeah, and that actually lines up really well with some of the research that we've conducted during the pandemic. So over the last year, I've collected some data on people's sexual fantasies and how they've changed during the pandemic compared to pre-pandemic times. And one of the things that I see is that fantasies about ex-partners or former partners increased during the pandemic. And that also goes along with another finding we have, which is that about one in five people reached out to an ex during the pandemic. And they did that for a wide range of reasons. You know, sometimes it was just about wanting to check in on the other person and see how they're doing. But sometimes it's about wanting to rekindle that past relationship or wanting to meet some emotional need or something like that. And so we saw a lot of that happening in our data in terms of, you know, people's actual behaviors and also in terms of their fantasies where there was this sense of sexual nostalgia (laughs) and romantic nostalgia that was coming out for a lot of them. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it makes total sense, right? Because a lot of those things are threatened during COVID, right? We're more isolated. People are feeling lonelier. It's harder to find that social connection. So yeah, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for this amazing conversation, Amy. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Sure. I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Amy Muse. And I have a website for my lab that talks about the research that we have ongoing in my lab. And that's just at amymuse.com. Well, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn more about the science of fantasies. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.